Well, you can't underestimate the power of a speech. Of course, not all speeches are remembered. Not every sermon uh, is remembered. Not every TED Talk catches your attention. But there are just some speeches, either because of the words that are used, the people who are giving them, or the occasion that it is given that resonate in the hearts of those who hear it. Sometimes there's lines that resonate even more deeply. You think of a date that will live in infamy, a line given by President FDR at Pearl Harbor. Four score and seven years ago, uh, good old honest Abe. Or, or maybe the compelling speeches uh, in, in movies, I think of a little bit of Shawshank, get busy living or get busy dying. Or how about this one? I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails. We forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. Can't talk about speeches without talking about Lord of the Rings. Well, just like some of these memorable speeches this morning, we're going to be spending the time with, with, with Paul and one of his farewell speeches to a bunch of people that he deeply and dearly loves in Acts 20. And so if you want to turn with me there, we're going to be um, primarily towards the end. But if I, if I were going to pull one verse out of, of Acts 20 today that kind of summarizes the heart of Paul, it would be verse 24. And he says this. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Think about those words. I consider my life nothing. My only aim is to finish the task that Jesus has given me to testify to the grace of God. It's inspiring stuff. He's directed his entire life, his sole desire is to pursue Jesus and the task that that Christ has given to him, to lay aside everything else for the sake of the cause. And while it is inspiring to us, we also probably think, man, I could never be as radical or sold out as the Apostle Paul. But you and me are not called to be the Apostle Paul. We're called to live uniquely as God has called us in our unique personality, circumstances, gifts, and purposes. What if you this morning saw your God? assigned task to love God and to love others, to live sacrificially as the sole aim and goal of life? What would happen if, if at least every morning you would at least try to live a little more intentionally towards that end? What would it look like to set aside the lesser desires of the world for the greater desires of the kingdom in your life? That is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so crucial to understanding how we do this is just a little bit of backstory, the first part of, of Acts 20, the first half before his farewell speech that, that Paul gives. 
You see, verses 1 through 6, as well as verses 13 through 16, they, they, they solely focus on these details, these travel narratives, these, these, these mundane, ordinary kinds of things that, you know, why is this in Scripture? And in between these things, there's this, this miraculous incident where Paul is preaching a really long sermon, and, and there's a guy who falls asleep and then falls out a window because Paul's preaching so long, and he dies, and Paul resurrects him. You should read it during a week because we're not going to be there today. But the point is, there's these these spans not just here in Acts 20, but throughout Acts. He spans just ordinary life, things, details we think that we don't necessarily need to know, interspersed by the miraculous. And here's where we want to start this morning, that the mundane is where most of life is lived. And it takes a lot of mundane, ordinary steps to get to the mountaintops of life. If we always expect faith to be a mountaintop, though, then we will be disappointed. In fact, whenever we are always striving for the mountaintop, even the plateaus of ordinary life will seem like valleys. The sad reality is that as a culture, we have lost the ability to be present to the ordinary because of the pull of the seemingly extraordinary. Have you ever been so excited about something to go to that place for the first time, eat that food that you've been hearing about, go to that concert or, or whatever it might be, and you're so excited about the idea of it. You're driven by it, but you lose perspective and, and you miss everything that happens, the journey leading up to it. And even when you get there, it's something that disappoints. Well, I'm a, a huge Star Wars fan, and, and so the, the latest Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker, I was looking forward to it all my life. You know, it was like this episode nine, it's the culmination of everything. I'm one of the few who actually enjoy The Last Jedi because it actually took some creative risks, uh, unlike the other two movies. And, but, but I was so excited. I'd be on the internet looking up articles and trailers and all that kind of stuff, and I came across one that actually spoiled the ending. It had been leaked, and, and that ruined the experience for me. Didn't particularly enjoy the ending anyway, but ruined the experience for me. I could not suffer and be patient waiting for this thing. I, the journey was ruined as well as the destination because I could not walk through the ordinary and mundane waiting. The boredom that comes from that, suffering through that. It is a form of, of suffering, of waiting through something, denying yourself something that you want. And this is the way the world works. We see posts on Instagram or Facebook or, or, or TikTok of people living their best lives and we can't help but want what they want, have, go after whatever they're going after. And, and we see the pictures of, of their seeming mountaintops, which are oftentimes through filters, let's be honest. And then we compare it to ourselves and it's not good enough. And so we strive after those things. The ordinary is not beautiful or compelling enough for us. We're resistant to things like boredom. That's not even a thing anymore. We're, we're, we're not okay with being ignorant of the things we don't know. We're not okay with walking in the ordinary, to be present and thankful and content. And it's no wonder with that kind of outlook on life that a third to half of all Americans have regular feelings of anxiety and depression. It's up 25% since COVID hit. And over half of the American workforce are looking for a new job as of 2022. So the discontent that's underneath that 
82% of Americans of us are dissatisfied with the way things are going in our culture. There's this, we're just not okay with hardship, suffering, patience, ordinary, mundane. We always want something more. We're craving something more. Something's in the water and we're not immune to it as people of Jesus. We're not immune to it as the church. And so if I, if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not going to, I imagine if I asked... What is your level of joy? Do you have a deep joy in the ordinary circumstances of everyday life? I would imagine that most of us would not raise our hands because that's not our experience. We don't know how to have joy in the ordinary and the mundane and the boring. See, we often miss the beauty of passages that... The Apostle Paul also shares in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, where we're urged to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, that you will not be dependent on anyone. What does it mean to live a quiet life, a mundane life, an ordinary life? We're addicted to the extraordinary. We're rarely content. And this really sets the stage for what Paul is going to have to share with us this morning in his farewell address. So we don't normally do this, but I might actually have you stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. There's a large passage, and we often stand to sing and worship God, musical worship. So we're going to stand in worship as we hear the Word of God read this morning because it is our authority And God is present in it. So let me go ahead and read this portion of Paul's farewell address, starting in verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is the word of the Lord. And you can have a seat this morning. So we have the beginning of the end in this passage. This is the last time Paul will ever be in this region, interact with these people who he has poured his life into, who he has loved and walked alongside and discipled and been encouraged by, these Ephesian elders. And so we want to take a close look at what he says in his farewell 
address. The first thing in, in verse 20, he says, you know, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. In other words, he's saying there's a difference between the things you probably wanted to hear and the things I ended up sharing with you, the things you needed to hear. He was willing to go there. If nothing else, throughout all Scripture, Apostle Paul is almost always willing to go there, to challenge the people of God, to step into the calling they have to walk with Jesus. And I think that, that this message in particular is not necessarily what we want to hear, but it is what we will need to hear. So pay attention this morning. Next, we see in the next couple of verses, the same verse that I started with this morning, that, that we see uh, Paul saying that, that, that his life is worth nothing, that he's pursuing the mission of Jesus. And, and in this, we are reminded again that, that if we cannot find purpose and joy in Jesus, it will never stick anywhere else. We can choose to make earthly decisions and choices in the flesh that will fade and have no eternal impact, or we can choose to make the eternal, lasting decisions that will impact our lives and the lives of everyone else here on earth and into eternity. And with that in mind this morning, we just want to take a, a minute and celebrate a few things that have been going on here at First Mint, some kingdom investments. We, we have a value of life-giving generosity, and, and we have the privilege of supporting several significant mission partners. Um, some of them are the, the Phillips, and they're over with the Mustard Seed Network in Japan. And they gave us an update this past week that, that God's been moving, that they have appointed four new elders, which is, if anyone knows the church planning process, it's a big, big deal. Four new elders uh, to their churches over in, in Japan. And so it's, it's something, an incredible thing that God is doing there. But they've been but also discipling people. They did a, a, a marriage ceremony for this couple, and they were able to share their testimony. And, and there were several among those who, who, were, uh, who came to this who heard the gospel the first time and were later baptized because of just a Christian wedding. So God is moving in Japan. Praise God. But even here locally, this past week, we have a, a, another... Uh, a core value of loving community. We were able to, to celebrate with the First Family Fair this past week, and there's going to be some, just some pictures on the screen of just uh, the people who were able to come and, and, and celebrate with us just right out here last week. And, and we were able to share the love back to our, our community, hopefully build some connections and relationships that hopefully will be lasting kingdom kinds of things over the course of time. The question we want to ask whether we're in Japan or we're, we're here locally, is what are the kingdom purposes that you are investing your life into? What are the kingdom purposes you're investing your life into? And this really brings us to the heart of this passage, the heart of what we're going to sit with this morning. We're going to dive into, and this is in verse 28, and, and Paul is saying, keep watch over yourselves, all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has given you to oversee, be shepherds of the church of God, which you bought with his own blood. Keep watch over yourselves. What does it mean when Paul says this? What does it mean to keep watch over your, yourselves, ourselves? 
See, Paul, as a good Jewish man, would have had most of, if not all, of the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, memorized. And he would have known in Proverbs 4.23, says that, that above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. He was concerned about how these elders were guarding their hearts, their, their, their individual and collective hearts, for the sake of the flourishing of these churches. But we, our tendency is not always to guard the things that ultimately, eternally matter for our life and eternal life of flourishing. So I ask this morning, what are you guarding or protecting? What is nearest and dearest to, to your heart? Is it the things that in guarding and the, they're leading to deeper life with God? Or is it the kind of things that are keeping you from flourishing with Jesus? What are you guarding or protecting? In addition to the wisdom of Proverbs, Paul would have also been familiar with Jeremiah 17, which says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts deceive us. And from them, all of life Flows. Paul knew that the, the greatest threat of the, to the health of these churches was not necessarily the external threats and challenges, but ultimately the pressures that those things put on the heart of the people who are leading and the people that they may become because of it. He even says that some of those among you will turn away and deceive others, take disciples with them. He knew that the state of their hearts before God would ultimately determine the trajectory of their ministry. And the same is true of us. But let's take a step back before we dive a little bit deeper into that. What does Scripture mean when it talks about our hearts? What does it mean to guard our hearts? What does it mean that our hearts are deceitful? What, what even is this idea of our Hearts. And so just a, a quick heads up, just because I want you to stick with me, I am going to get a little theological and philosophical for a moment about what our hearts are, and it, it can get a little overwhelming, but it's really important because it is so relevant to, to our culture today and what it means to walk faithfully with Jesus. So, so lean in here. In modern conversation, the, the heart often refers to our emotions, the place, the seat of our, our feelings in our life, but this is not true biblically. The ancient Hebrew concept of the heart is actually more uh, a concept close to the gut, the decision-making center of our lives. It's not necessarily the seat or primarily the seat of our emotions, but rather the core residence of what we call our will. So you might be thinking, well there, just, okay, Samuel, you're saying that the heart is the gut center of the will, and what does that really even mean? Well, in a nutshell, your will, your heart, we're going to use it interchangeably from now on, your will, your heart, it's the place where all decisions are made. Not necessarily, it's not your emotions, it's not your thoughts, although those things impact your decisions, but it is the decision-making center. It is the, the image-bearing capacity that when, you, when we say that we are made in the image of God, we have been given the capacity to create and make decisions for good or for evil. Our hearts, our wills, this is the core of who we are, and that's why it matters. 
For example, I asserted my will over my body this morning to get up at 5.30 a.m. when I didn't want to. I really hate mornings. I'm not a morning person. You can ask my wife. I asserted my will yesterday to finish this sermon on, on a day that's typically my day off. I asserted my will last night when I ordered chicken pad thai medium because that's my favorite probably meal on the planet. And so in the small things and the big things, we assert our wills when we marry someone, when we choose relationships, when we walk in daily life but also make lifelong decisions, we assert our wills onto something. We're making decisions and in the process becoming something. It matters because out of our hearts flows everything that we do and everything that we are. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he's talking to these Ephesian elders and saying, this is the last time I'm going to see you, and so you need to keep watch over yourself. He's saying, I care about who you're becoming. I, I worry about the decisions you make and the path that's going to lead down. I don't, I don't want to see your negative thoughts, emotions, and experience get the better of you. I want you to be holy and sanctified and remain faithful to God. This is my hope and prayer for you. That is the heart of the Apostle Paul in this passage. You see, who you are becoming is more important than anything that you can accomplish. Anything that you can do. I would even argue that who you're becoming is the most important thing about you. And here's why, because the person you become is the only thing that you will take with you into eternity. You won't take anything that you accumulate in this life. The only thing guaranteed that you take with you into eternity is the person you are becoming. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis on how our choices, asserting our will, shapes and forms us. This is from Mere Christianity. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little bit different than it was before. Taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing, your will, your heart, into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else is in a state of war and hatred with God, with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy, peace, knowledge, power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. We are all in the process of becoming something. He's saying that we make choices and then our choices make us. This is the process of what we call sanctification, spiritual formation, our journey of discipleship with Jesus. For Christians, our goal is to become like Jesus, to become whatever it means to be love as God is love. Just because that's what our goal is doesn't mean that it happens. How can we be intentional with the people we're becoming? How can we become the kind of people whose heart or whose will, a central part of us, is always oriented towards the will of God, the presence of God? It's all about, I would argue, what we love, what we desire, what we want. We unpack that. Have you heard the tale of, of two wolves? 
Tale of Two Wolves. It's a popular legend, uh, unknown origin, not really sure. It's a lot of times attributed to the Cherokee or the Lenape people. It goes like this. One evening, an old Cherokee told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, My son, the battle is between two wolves inside of us. One is evil. It is anger, envy, jealousy. The list goes on. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope. The list goes on. The grandson thought about it for a minute and asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee answered, whichever wolf that you feed. And this gets to a vital question that we need to answer if we're going to answer the question of who are you becoming. It's what are you feeding? What are you feeding this morning? What have you fed yourself this week? Not just physically, but spiritually. What are you feeding? Whatever desires you feed will determine your trajectory, your eternal destination. Whatever cravings, emotions, desires will eventually, when you feed them, drive you. We know this. For example, if I decided to eat the Lord's chicken every single day, Chick-fil-A, every single meal, it would be so amazing. And and all I would ever want is Chick-fil-A, and I would just start to crave it more and more and more. But over the time, over the years, I'm pretty sure even if I ate the healthiest thing on the menu, it would not be good for my body. And I would suffer consequences of that. And that's a, you know, a neutral kind of like fun, like, yeah, Chick-fil-A's awesome, you know. But what about you have a long day at work, you're anxious, you're, there's tension, you, you go home, you unwind a bit, crack open a beer, have a little alcohol to take the edge off. And you do that one day, and then you do it a couple days later, and then you start doing it more often and more often and days turn into weeks into years and you find yourself addicted to a substance you've given yourself over you've you've cultivated desire for something that is ultimately destructive you become a slave and so whether it's chick-fil-a or alcohol or anything else in this world we can become slaves to our desires It doesn't just happen with substances. It can also happen with behaviors. For example, if you always give in to road rage, if you always flip the bird whenever someone cuts you off, you will become, over time, more and more angry of a person. If you always ignore the poor as you walk by them, eventually you'll become the person who's callous and doesn't even notice them. If all you ever do is pursue by the newest cutting-edge device, then you will never be content with the device you have and the things that are in front of you. This is the process, formation in our lives, of becoming who we'll be for all of eternity. But desire itself isn't bad. Desire is from God. In fact, St. Augustine defined sin as disordered desire. It's not that the core desires that we have are bad. It's that we misplace them, that we crave and act on them in disordered kinds of ways. Work is not bad. Work existed before the fall. But when we start to prioritize work over our responsibility to love our families, it's disordered and it is sinful. Food is, is wonderful until we'd rather have a tub of ice cream instead of processing our feelings with the people that we love. 
Sex isn't evil. It's a gift from God until it's turned inward on itself and sold used for self-pleasure and gratification instead of loving covenant relationships. Jamie Smith says, we desire because we are made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God when we fall away from God. The desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Disordered desire is sin, and sin leads to death. Our hearts, our will, when we repeatedly turn them towards something, and when that something is not rooted in God, we will become slaves to that desire, and it will lead to death. I know in my life, it's, it's not an unintentional life apart from Christ. I don't get up and plan to not read my Bible. I don't get up and plan to be critical towards others. I don't get up and mean to be selfish and thinking only of myself, but I often do. Why? It's the patterns of sin and desire in my life that I have not placed before God and directed towards God. And so I ask this morning, all of us, what desires do you, what desires do we need to starve in our lives? What wolves do we need to stop feeding? And here's a really crazy thought. The reality is that our strongest desires are not our deepest desires. Our strongest desires are often on the surface of the flesh, carnal, not necessarily sinful, but, but in our bodies. I hunger, I thirst, I desire sexual intimacy. But underneath all of that is, is, a, is a deep desire for communion with God and with other people, to be seen and loved and to love others. This is what we're made for, but we settle for things that are less. This is why our hearts are idol-making factories, that we are always turning over our desires and directing them in ways that are destructive. And the reality is that to, to go after the deeper desires requires great intentionality and discipline. And that is the promise and the hope of discipleship with Jesus. We can become sanctified, become holy, live the kind of life that we only thought we'll live in eternity. So how? Samuel, how? I'm hearing you. This is awesome, but it's also overwhelming. I, have, I, I don't even begin to, to know what this would look like in my life. How can we go about feeding the, the right wolf, order our desires wisely towards love and goodness, pursuing the deepest desires over strongest desires? How do we live in such a way that our heart and will are free to love and not slaves to selfish pleasures? How can we be slaves to righteousness and not sin? How can we, like the Apostle Paul, consider our life worth nothing compared to the purpose of God in our lives and desire that for others like the Ephesian elders? How? It really comes back to what I already talked about at the beginning, that it's a life of patient suffering in the mundane and ordinary. 
If we can't say no, if we can't be faithful in the midst of just everyday mundane obedience, then we're never going to be able to say no to the big sinful desires in our lives. If I can't say no to spoilers on the internet, I'm not going to be able to say no over time to the things that are really going to wreck my life. Pursuing the deepest desires of our hearts requires suffering in the form of discipline. Craig Rochelle says that, that discipline is choosing what you want most instead of what you want now. We live in an age of instant gratification. That bowl of candy at home or those vegetables in the fridge. We know this. If you always reach for the bowl of candy, you're always going to crave the bowl of candy. But literally, biologically, if you start eating vegetables, you will eventually crave them. It's the same in our spiritual lives. And the ultimate model for suffering of, of discipleship with Jesus is the cross, that we crucify our desire at the feet of Jesus, that we say, that might be good, but you are better. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. What does it look like? What would it look like for you to sow to please the Spirit, to direct your will towards the will of God, to direct your desires, to feed the kingdom desires and to starve desires of the world in your life? What good do you need to begin and continue doing for the sake of a future harvest of righteousness? This is the promise of discipleship with Jesus. The Spirit goes with us. The Spirit does the work, but it does require our effort. We don't earn salvation. It's given to us. We are called to live it out. And that takes work. And work is good. I know very well how desire can go bad in multiple ways in my, in my life. There's one in particular, I've been on a journey the last, well, really my whole life. I actually, and for some of you, this is not going to resonate, but stay with me. I love video games. I grew up playing Pokemon, and I would put hundreds and hundreds of hours into my Pokemon. And, and you know, my parents, you know, like, as every good parent's like, you could only have so many hours a day. But I would sneak the Game Boy away and play it under my covers at night, you know, and as any kid probably does. But I, I loved video games, and I grew up, and I just would play hundreds of hundreds of hours, and I'd get older and older, and I'd get, uh, you know, all the new co consoles, and I would just continue playing, continue playing throughout high school, into college, and I really just found myself wasting my life. Giving myself over to something that wasn't real made me feel like I was good at something. And it really hit me whenever I got married. 
as most things do, as marriage is one of the greatest sanctifying places for humans. But I realized I, I'm just, I just want to play video games and not be with my wife. So I gave up consoles back in 2015, 2016. But as we all do with sin, with desire, it's like, well, you know, that, that might be okay. So I started playing phone games and Pokemon Go. You know, it's active. I'm walking around. I can get some exercise. I can meet new people, maybe preach the gospel. Justify. Picked up a Star Wars game, of course, a Star Trek game. Themes here, you know, obviously. And I just found myself having trouble being present with people. Because now the distraction was in my pocket. The things I loved, the things I desired were just right there with me. And I wasn't present to my wife and I wasn't fully present to my ministry. And I knew that this was not good. I didn't really want it, but I wanted it. That's how desire works. In many ways, I've become a slave to these games. And in the fall of 2020, I completely gave up gaming. I will still play, you know, like Mario Party and stuff with the groups of people, you know, relationship, but I, I won't have one on my phone and I won't ever have a console again. And so there was a victory there. But here's the reality. This was, that was not a victory won in my own power and my own flesh. You see, in the fall of 2020, I started a program with 30 people, and we went really deep with Jesus. We just were suing Jesus with all that we had, and I was at a, a residency retreat at a Catholic retreat center, and it was there that I heard the words from one of the teachers that I knew in my mind, but he said it, and he said that the modern crisis for men in this culture are porn, pot, and video games. And for whatever reason, even though I knew that, that was the moment I was like, I gotta lay this down. And I was only able to do so because of the people with me in that room, the 30 people that I spent a week with, that I ended up spending two years with, that it is in community that we walk with Jesus and, and people walk with us and bear our burdens that we're able to reorder our desires together, support one another bear each other's burdens, let go, be free of addiction. It's because of others in our lives. And frankly, even the church is, is, is not great at community, not great at biblical accountability, not great at, at discipleship together. You can't do it on your own. You have to lean into the spirit and you need to have people walking alongside you. And so this morning, I don't know where you're at, but the questions I want to leave you with is, what do you need to starve in your life? What have you been wanting to get rid of, but you have not had the power, the, the will to do so? What desires do you need to feed? What kingdom pursuits, pursuit of the presence of God in your life, whatever that might look like in, in your unique way, what do you need to feed? And who are you walking with? Or who do you need to invite to walk alongside you? I need help because I can't do this anymore. We have groups and we're launching this thing called Discipleship Cohort soon. So please come find me or reach out, email, whatever you need to do, write on your connect cards. We want to figure out how to get you into community. You can't do it alone. 
But together we can walk with Jesus. We can say, I have these desires, but I'm going to crucify them alongside you. And we're going to walk together. We're going to suffer obedience together for the sake of something greater, deeper, and eternal. That is the hope this morning. And I pray that you would have the strength to walk in it.